I invite you to think about a time in your life, maybe at work, maybe at the supermarket, where you heard someone being disciplined and you just thought to yourself, man, that felt a little harsh. For those of you who are in the job force, maybe you've been at your office and a coworker got called in to talk to the boss and uh, they don't know it, but you can hear what's being said and you can kind of hear it and you're trying not to hear it because you're thinking to yourself, oh, I don't want to hear what's going on here. And, and uh, the boss begins to say some things and you just start to think, man, that feels a little harsh. Maybe you've been in the supermarket before when a mom or dad or an aunt or uncle corrects their child and you think to yourself, well, I just need to go over there and give that parent some advice. Because that just felt too harsh. Have you, has that ever happened to you before? Like, have you ever been in a context where you're watching something or you're listening to something and you're doing your best to not pay attention, but you can't not pay attention? And it's like, man, that just, that just hurts for me to hear, hear it. Uh, today, you may have that experience because Jesus is going to rebuke Peter like we've never seen a person get rebuked in our life. He is literally going to call him Satan. He's going to say, get behind me, Satan. And you may look at that and go, oh, that just feels so harsh. I want for you to prepare your emotions for this uh, because this is an important text of Scripture. Uh, It may feel harsh to you, but I hope and I believe that by the time we get to the end of the message, you will clearly understand why it was necessary, why it was important, and why it actually wasn't harsh at all. It may seem that way because Peter has been um, as faithful as he could be to Jesus. He's followed Jesus. He's taken all the instructions from Jesus. He's done ministry. Uh, He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's gone and preached the good news to people. He's gone into villages. He's left everything that's familiar with him. He's done his best. And then he makes this mistake and Jesus calls him Satan. (laughs) It's a strange passage, but we're going to lean into the strangeness this morning. And by the time we leave today, we are not only going to understand why it happened here, but we are going to, with God's grace and power, have the tools and the principles that we need so we can leave here today and it not happen to us. Because I don't ever want to hear the voice of Jesus call me Satan. And I love you. You're my friend. And I don't want it to happen to you either. Let's look this morning in Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at just a couple of verses this morning, and uh, hopefully also by the end of the message, you will, with me, be in awe of all of the theology and all of the practical points that are packed into verses 31, 32, and 33. Now, if you will remember uh, what's just happened In the verses above, you can even look up and just see what's happened here. But uh, Jesus has been with his disciples, and he's been walking with them. And he said to them, hey, listen, um, who do the people say that I am? And they say, oh, well, they they think they don't have any idea who you are. They think you're John the Baptist. Uh, Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet. And then if you'll remember, Jesus puts them on the spot, right? He kind of brings this point of confrontation to them where he says, who do you say I am? And it's Peter, 
the very one who's about to receive the rebuke. It's Peter who says, you are the Messiah. And then we jump into verse 31. And he began to teach them. What's happened is that Jesus is now teaching them what it means to own the title of Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the one to liberate the world. I am the one to liberate God's people. And it says that he began to teach them what that means. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, look at this, this guy Peter, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We'll come back to that. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, now I want you to notice there is an exclamation point on this. He is yelling. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So this morning, if you kind of come to the table this morning of the word of God, thinking to yourself, man, Peter just like messed up once. He's done all this stuff right and he just messed up once. What is the big deal with Jesus calling Peter Satan? I want for us to understand that. And I want to jump right in to the mistake that Peter made because I don't want for it to be lost on us. Like in the drama of what happens, I want to make sure fundamentally, practically, and theologically, we understand what is happening in these three verses. Peter has basically retained the idea of a Messiah without allowing the scripture to define it. Let me say a little bit about what I mean by this. The Old Testament is very clear and filled up with prophecy pointing to people to, to the Messiah and explaining what that means. So Jesus, when he is explaining to him that he must suffer, that he must be rejected, that he must be killed... All Jesus is doing is teaching them what the Old Testament already taught them. Isaiah 53 is very clear. It teaches that the Messiah is going to suffer. Jesus is not saying anything that hasn't already been said in Isaiah 53. So in verse 31 where it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. If you're a note taker, you can just write down Isaiah 53. This isn't a new revelation. This isn't new stuff. This isn't new material. This is just something that Jesus is teaching as standard in Isaiah 53. When he talks about the, the, the Son of Man being rejected, uh, we find that in Psalm 118. When we talk about the Messiah being killed, that is the picture of the Passover in the book of Exodus. Uh, where the lamb was to be slaughtered and the blood was to be applied to the doorpost so, so, that, so that the angel of death would see that the blood has been applied to that home and would pass over. Psalm 34 talks about the death of the Messiah. And so when, Jesus, when, when Peter declares in the verse above that Jesus is the Messiah, all Jesus has started to do is to say, let me help define what that means to use that term. But what's happened 
is that Peter is continuing to use the theological word, but is no longer allowing the scripture to define what that means. And so what's put him in hot water, so to speak, what's, what's elicited this rebuke is that he's still using spiritual language, but he's no longer using scripture to define what that means. And that may seem simple, but it is a fundamental mistake that we can make in life because Peter is not the only one who makes it. And you may think to yourself, well, if Peter isn't going to Isaiah and Psalm and, and Exodus to, to get his understanding about what that word means, where is he? going? I think that's an excellent question. And I don't really know the answer to it, to be honest with you. So I'm telling you, I'm admitting to you this morning here online, I am guessing. I'm up here guessing. I guess that he got it from his friends. That there came a point in his life where they're sitting around the fireplace And they're talking and they're saying, man, what is it going to be like when the Messiah comes? And they're sitting around the fireplace and one of their friends says, you know what I bet's gonna happen with the side grin? I bet he's gonna crush Rome. And everybody loved that. So they're like, yeah, he's gonna crush Rome. And when they left the fireplace that day, the fire pit, that's what everybody began to say. Why? Because a friend said it around the fire pit. It must be true. I bet, I guess, that he got his view of what it means to be the Messiah from friends. And also, I bet he got it from people who were mad at the government. And I know we know nothing about that. But there probably was a group of people sitting around one day, mad at the current administration and saying, I hope when the Messiah gets here that he crushes Rome. And they said, yeah, I bet that's what's going to happen. Because he can't possibly let Rome exist if he's going to reign. If he's going to lead the way, he's going to have to crush the current administration and all of their crazy rules and all of their foolish traditions. I bet that the Messiah is going to crush Rome. Yeah. And they go tell everybody. And people believed it. Why? Because it was written in scripture? No. Because their friends told them. My guess is that part of Peter's understanding of the Messiah came from his own imagination and his own desires. And that he was sitting in his recliner one day watching football, (laughs) reflecting on life and what it meant for the Messiah to come And he didn't open the scripture. He just started dreaming up ideas. And it's it's almost comical, isn't it? But what's tragic is that when Jesus 
the Messiah is preaching the gospel to Peter that the Son of Man will suffer and be rejected and be crucified and be raised on the third day. That biblical message was so foreign to Peter that he couldn't accept it because he had swallowed what the world thought about who the Messiah would be. Wow. How tragic is that? I want to be clear about something. It isn't that Peter wasn't passionate about his beliefs. He was very passionate. He was so passionate that the Jesus that he had been following for three years, when this Jesus began to speak something outside of what his expectation was, he jumped to action. And and it's not as though Peter wasn't extremely convinced that this was correct. It isn't that Peter wasn't sincere. He was sincere. He just was sincerely wrong. It's important for us to understand what's happened here. There is a spiritual idea called the Messiah here. And Peter was defining it in one way. And Jesus was defining it in another way. And when Jesus is speaking about the Messiah in the way that is biblical from the Old Testament, Peter couldn't have it. Because he had swallowed all of this popular culture idea of what was going to happen when the Messiah came. Where did he get it? We don't know. Maybe friends, maybe people who were mad at the government. Maybe he dreamed it up himself. But on that day, he took the creator of the universe aside and rebuked him for this. This is a tragedy. This is an outright tragedy that this occurred. So this morning, I want for us to navigate not only understanding what's happened here and understanding the why, understanding why Jesus so sharply rebukes Peter. And do you see what he says? He says to Peter, this is just right out here in the open for us. He says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Why? Here's what he says. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. What does that mean? You're not looking at the world through a biblical lens. You're not letting the scripture interpret reality for you. You're not letting scripture interpret what it means to be the Messiah. Your mind is set on the things of man. You have let the world define this. And he's so bought into it that he's willing to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. So I want to do this morning with that understanding, now that we have a mindset of what's at play here and what's going on, and now that we've been able to see that basically what Jesus has done is he's pointed back to the Old Testament and he's begun to define for them what it means to be the Messiah. 
And because Peter has accepted and adopted a definition other than the biblical definition, he has put his foot down and said, absolutely not, Jesus. I will not allow this. This is not good for your image. This is not on brand. This is not going to get a bunch of people to follow us. You're going to have to stop this, right? He rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes him. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? And so if you have your notes this morning, if you're a note taker, you see that we're going to answer uh, that question with a sentence. When we, because I don't want for us to just go, that's Peter's deal. That's that disciple's issue. I want for us to own our own space in this. When we, when we live or when we talk spiritually without the scripture, Three things happen. Again, that's, that's exactly what happened with Peter. He was talking about a spiritual idea. He was talking about a theological word, but he wasn't allowing scripture to define that word. Three things happened to him, and I would put on the table for us this morning, three things will happen for us. If we live a spiritual life or use spiritual language or have theological conversations and the scripture isn't defining that for us, three things happen. The first, we will misunderstand the moment that we are having with God. I've already used the word tragedy, but I I can't think of another word that articulates better the tragedy of Peter missing this moment. And it's so sad because he just got it right. He just said, you are the Messiah in his most wise and brilliant voice possible. You are the Messiah. He got it right. And then he does this. This is the tragedy. That he's hearing the gospel. And it is distasteful to him. And he misses the glory of that moment hearing Jesus Christ tell him the gospel he misses that moment oh may it never be of us of me of you that because we're so bought in to the worldview of mankind that we miss a moment with God That's one thing that we can understand will happen if we live or talk spiritually without being shaped by Scripture, misunderstanding the moment. More tragically, secondly, we will actually stand against Christ. I cannot put into words my emotions are thoughts of verse 32. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I just can't get my brain around this, you guys. A human being rebuking the Creator. A sinful human rebuking the Savior. And it isn't as though Peter was this crazy, 
wicked guy who hated God and wanted to crush the church? I mean, if you just look at his life, you're kind of struck with the impression that he really wanted to get it right with God. So then how can in this moment when he's had this intense conversation with Jesus where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he with great courage and great conviction belts out, you are the Christ. How can it come to this place where he is standing against the Lord? Oh, it's it's broken. I can't imagine being in that place. And yet as I reflect, I'm scandalized with the reality that there have been times that this has been true of me. And I'm sure that it's been true of you as well. When we live, talk spiritually without scripture, three things happen. We misunderstand the moment with God. We actually stand against Christ. And if you're making notes, thirdly, we require a rebuke. We are calling out to heaven for a sharp rebuke because we've gotten to this place where whether it's our friends or people who are mad at the government or we're dreaming it up ourselves or wherever we got this idea of this spiritual topic, and maybe for you and I, it's not Messiah. I mean, we don't have many conversations anymore, we do we, about what does it mean to be the Messiah. But there are other topics, right? And there are other situations in life, and there are other uh, contexts in which we have spiritual conversations, and sometimes it's informed more by our friends. Sometimes it's informed more by things that we're mad at in the world. Sometimes it's informed more by the things I wish it were, not necessarily what the scripture says it is. But when we do that and move forward with that, we're going to get rebuked. We're going to hear the voice of the Lord rebuking us. Get behind me, Satan, because you have set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And you may be sitting here going, I don't know anything about the Messiah. How is this going to happen to me? Fair. The proposal that I'm making to you this morning isn't specifically about our views about the Messiah. What I'm saying this morning is that there are a whole host of topics and words and, and life choices and situations that are relevant to this conversation where the Bible speaks clearly about them, but either our friends or our own thoughts are hanging around the fire pit one day has changed our mind and we no longer embrace a biblical view of this whatever this is, but instead we have set our mind on what the mankind has said about it, on the things of man. I'll give you a couple of examples. I can't give them all. We don't have time. Sin. That is a topic that by and large gets ignored or when it is discussed, 
usually, oftentimes, perhaps not in your circle. And if it's, this is a foreign thought to you, praise God. But in many circles, our understanding of sin is more shaped and understood by what our friends think about it than what Scripture teaches about it. Judgment is the same way. The idea of divine judgment. Well, we walk around oftentimes, don't we? And we say, well, God is love. God wouldn't possibly judge anybody. God is all loving. And we have this viewpoint of God that he's like some fluffy teddy bear that lives in the sky and he hands out lollipops and he has no no divine power or judgment about him other than to grant a few wishes every now and then. That's not a biblical view of God. So I say to you with tremendous love and affection, if you think that God is not a God of judgment, you don't have a biblical view of God. God passes judgment. And understand it's a hard topic to talk about. If you think that there's no such thing as sin, it's just personal choices, and that we're not guilty of sin that we need to be saved from, you don't have a biblical view of sin. And again, it's not an easy topic. And I... I, I am not here today to make you feel bad about your theology or to convince you that mine is right because probably mine is as broken as the rest. What I'm saying to you is that yours is wrong and mine's wrong. What's right is the scripture. That's my point. So I say to you this, to the extent that we retain theological ideas and infuse them with either our definition or our friend's understanding and divorce them from what the scripture teaches about them, we are on a road for trouble. That's the point. So how do we get it right? Because I believe, my my senior pastor one time said, wise people learn from other people's mistakes. And I thought, yes, yes. I love reading the scripture, people messing up, because hopefully I can learn from that and not do it. And so this morning, as we look at this rebuke from Jesus to Peter, well, I should say from Peter to Jesus, and then from Jesus to Peter, and we see how strong the rebuke was, and we understand now why, because he had retained the word Messiah, but he had used his own thoughts to define it, and Jesus was using the scripture to define it, and it was inevitable that there was a confrontation that was going to have to happen there. So what do we learn from it, and how do we get it right? I want to share with you some thoughts. They're in your notes Uh, The first thought, understand that there are many worldviews. We could name them if you wanted to name them. Some of them don't even have names yet. But a worldview is the way that you see the world, the way that you understand the world, the lens by which you look through the world to, to try to make sense of it. And there's a whole host of worldviews. And you have to decide today and tomorrow... And Tuesday and every day, you have to make the choice, what worldview am I going to adopt? In the text, Peter failed 
to adopt a biblical worldview of the Messiah. And instead, he adopted the pop culture view, popular cultural view of who the Messiah was and what he would do. And it put him at odds with God. And so we have to understand there's lots of different lenses by which we can look at the world. There's the secular lens that says humanity is like at the center point. We don't need God. We've got people. People can figure it out themselves. There's a whole host of worldviews. You can look this up. But we have to understand that there are many, and we have to decide what worldview we're going to look at the world through. We have to accept, secondly, that we can have good intentions and bad perspectives. I want to hang on this point that I mentioned to you a few moments ago. Peter was passionate. He was sincere in his beliefs. He was actually operating from a desire to help the kingdom of God. But man, did he have it wrong. So I'm here to tell you, you may have a lot of passion in your soul. You may have a lot of good intentions. But you can have some really skewed viewpoints on what it means to follow Jesus. And these perspectives can really get shifted whenever it's something that we really want. Whenever it's something that we really wish God wanted for our life, all of the sudden, it must be God's will. For instance, it isn't uh, infrequent that somebody comes to me and we have this conversation. Pastor Zach, I just want to get your advice on something. Now, I know what the Bible says. And when that happens, I say, oh, here we go. Listen, if you ever come to my office and you want to have this conversation, don't start it that way. Pastor Zach, I need your opinion. I know the Bible teaches against whatever it is. But I've been praying about it. And I really think God wants me to do this. What do you think? Well, this is the shortest session I'll have. All I'm trying to do is find a gentle way to say to you, God is never going to tell you to do something that he's already put in the word of God. He's consistent. So if you know that the Bible teaches against something and you do it anyway, it isn't because God has told you to do it. It's because you've created a God in your mind that has given you permission to do this sin that you want to do. This is what we're talking about. Sometimes it's, it's accidental and sometimes it's not. And you can do that with good intentions. I'm not saying that you have bad intentions. I'm not saying that you want to wreck your life or you want to uh, do something against God or rebel against God so that, so that you're at odds with God. You may have good intentions but bad perspective. That's what happened with Peter that day. He had bad perspective because he had allowed something other than Scripture to define for him what it means to call Jesus Messiah. Third, depend on the power of the Spirit to enable change 
in our lives. I have to tell you, I could literally jump for joy right now at how happy I am that me getting it right depends on the power of the Spirit in my life and not my willpower or strength. It's the work of God. Now, we have a responsibility and an obligation. But you know what I've been doing? I was sharing this with the congregation in the last hour. Two or three days ago, I started really taking this point seriously and praying something. And I'm going to share with you the prayer that I've been praying. Uh, If you want to adopt it, you can. If you want to tweak it, you can. If you want to forget about it, you can. I've been making this prayer. Lord, I know that I have blind spots and broken desires and misunderstandings about you. Please correct me. Lord, I know that I have blind spots. I have broken desires just like Peter. And I know that I have misunderstandings about who you are. Correct me. What if Peter would have pulled Jesus aside and instead of rebuking him, pull him aside and say, Jesus, I'm going to tell you something. You just blew my mind over there. You just said that the Son of Man is going to suffer. Didn't know that. Rejected. Wasn't aware of that. Be killed. Jesus, what are you talking about here? I need to know. Because me and all my buddies at the fire pit thought you were coming to crush Rome. What is this about? What if Peter had this posture of saying, Jesus, I know I have blind spots and I know I have broken desires and I know I have some misunderstandings about you. Correct me. Instead, he stood against the work of Jesus. He rebuked Jesus. He actively was working against the one for whom he later would face persecution and martyrdom. We must depend on the power of the Spirit that enables us to change. And then we need to commit to being humble enough to change. I know with all of the humanity that is packed in this room and online that there are some folk here today who doesn't think they need to change. That the world has it wrong. That your friends have it wrong about you. That God has it wrong about you. That everybody around you needs to change and flex to accommodate you and your perspectives. Surely, with the number of people here, there are people here who struggle with that. If we want to get it right, we need to have the humility to give Christ his rightful throne and for us to have the humility to understand we have not yet arrived We have not yet been fully sanctified. We we are not yet received glorification. We still need to struggle to accept the Spirit's work in our life to change. Guys, 
I don't want you to hear the rebuke of God Almighty because we are using or thinking spiritually without allowing the scripture to inform it. And it's, this text is so rich because there's so many humorous things about it and there's so many tragic things about it and there's just so many points of application. I want for us to go to prayer this morning as we close and really kind of focus in on one or two things. So would you just bow with me as we close our time together? And we've done a lot of theology this morning. And we've jumped into the word thoughtfully. But really where I'd like for us to land is with you reflecting on all of these different areas of your life and really getting honest with yourself. Is there a spot or an area or a concept or a doctrine or a way of life or a pattern that exists in your life in which you have preferred the definition of man over the definition of God. If you find that, I plead with you to deal with it today. I plead with you to allow the scripture to burn your perspective to the ground and rebuild it solidly through the lens of scripture with a biblical worldview. I plead with you to come into the presence of almighty God with humility to learn without demands and rebukes towards God. I want to give you a moment just to reflect and to pray and to take kind of this general teaching and drill down in your life. Apply to your life. Make sure that we get it right in every area of our life. as we close I am encouraged in the provision that you have delivered to us by way of warning and caution we have learned the lesson today of what happens when we let the world define theological things for us and not the word and so Lord I pray for us as individuals as we stand before you as one person, as an individual, may it be true that we have yielded all things to the scrutiny of and the definition of the word of God. As a people, Lord, I pray that your spirit would both protect and correct us as a congregation 
if we are out of step with what we've talked about today. I pray for our leaders here at this church who are responsible for putting ministry together and leading ministry in the kids ministry and the student ministry and the senior adult ministry and women's ministry and men's ministry, young adult ministry, our elders, our teachers, Lord, correct us. We admit, Lord, that we have blind spots and broken desires and misunderstandings about you. We agree with the scripture. Help us to see that at every turn and at every decision. We thank you for a good morning, a glorious time of high praise. What a blessed reunion of so many global workers with us today. We pray over them that they feel loved and rested and connected and blessed by being here today with their church family. We thank you for the power of the word of God and for the unique and noticeable way that you meet with us as we worship you and seek to understand you. Bless our time as we leave this room to serve you better, we pray. In Jesus' name.